You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. We have a really awesome episode for today. Uh, we're going to have a process party. And to do so, uh, we've got some special guests. Uh, first, uh, we're going to have a little bit of an upgrade. We're going to uh, invite the thoughtful and kind uh, Dan Rosado, uh, who happens to be a dear member of the Inverse Collective and Community, into this space to ho- ho- co-host this conversation. For those that know Dan, know that he is um, really um, thoughtful around process theology, and he would it's just going to be a great conversation partner. Uh, but we're especially grateful for our guest, Trip Fuller, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh. He recently released Divine Self-Investment, a Constructive, Open, and Relational Christology, the first book in the Studies in Open and Relational Theology series. Uh, for over 13 years, Trip has been doing the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. He's kind of like a podcast OG out there, just been at this thing. And everybody who's been doing any of this knows that he in some ways set the, a path forward for um, these kind of thoughtful conversations on the podcast. Um, last year, um, the podcast had over 3.5 million downloads. It also inspired a book series with Fortress Press called The Homebrewed Christianity Guides. Um, Tripp is also uh, apparently a Lakers and Dodgers fan and takes Star Wars and Lord of the Rings a bit too seriously. Um, But other things, there's just so many other interesting um, aspects of who he is, but we're just especially delighted that uh, he's able to join us here in the Inverse community. Uh, thanks, Drew, for a great intro. Dan, we're glad you're here. Trip, welcome. Thanks for, for coming on uh, the podcast. This is my first time co-hosting with Jared. I want to thank Jared and Drew uh, for letting me hop on. And um, let's see, this is all improvisational. But if you could give us a little bit of background on your history with the Bible and the scriptures. And... Um, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? Um, well, so my parents are Baptist church planners from the South. So I didn't know that there were humans that didn't read the Bible and pray every day um, until we moved into a city uh, in middle school to church plant. Um, also, that meant <clears throat> uh, rural North Carolina. Religious diversity was kind of what kind of Baptist you were. So I remember when someone that was a missionary Baptist uh, moved in the area and was in my school, I I was like, I think we still witness to them, don't we? You know, so um, the Bible was always there. Uh, My my dad did his MDiv and then started his doctorate in church history, um, eventually did it at Drew, uh, and my mom was a school teacher and both loved reading. So my experience growing up was if you had a big question around faith and such, it would be like, well, what if you read this? 
right? Like, oh, think about this narrative, think about this text. Or if it was a philosophy question or a history question, they're like, well, here's a book, read this, and then we talk about it. So the scripture was always central, but it was part of the you know, the tradition and history and things you read and reflect on as you try to figure out your um, your place in the world. I would say our library was more diverse than our neighborhood and our church. And so um, growing up, the uh, the Bible played like a kind of a definitional role. Like I remember my parents teared up, you know, when I asked to do my quiet time on my own, they're like, he's learned to read. He's learned to, he's doing it on his own. This is like crescendo for Baptist parenting. Um, so it's always been there in, I joke about it, like in college, uh, when I was a philosophy major and wasn't sure there was a God, I was like a Baptist atheist. Cause I still read the Bible and prayed. I didn't know if there was anything there, but you obviously still read the Bible. And uh, so it's always been a part of my life. The, uh, the kind of the big transition early on where then I realized it wasn't just like a recipe book or like a, a straightforward collection of, uh, <laughs> of truths or something that just read off the page clearly was fifth grade. It was uh, Holy Week leading up to Easter. And I read all four gospels, passion stories and charted them out. Now, I don't want, should have given a trigger warning for everyone that grew up uh, in a world where you made charts that correlated to foreign policy that tended to support Israeli terrorism of the Palestinian people. This is not that kind of chart building. Um, this was just, I just knew charts, you know? So I laid it out and then you realize uh, if you do this, um, gospel's horrible editor, right? Somebody in Mark, it's Jesus is having the, he's sweating blood freaks out, right? Goes to the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? Then in, in John, the, they come to arrest him and Jesus, they're like, where's Jesus Christ? And he goes, I am, you know, echoing like, you know, the Hebrew scriptures and name of God. And they all just fall over. Jesus is in complete control. When he dies, he's like, it is finished head bow. Boom. Like, it, it's just like, there's no angst on the cross. It's a different thing altogether. You look at Matthew has freaking zombies. Zombies just pop out. Uh, which, which day of the Passover uh, mm -hmm. did Jesus die on? They didn't even get that clear. I mean, basic things. And if you're just charting it out, is he scared to death or is he in complete charge? Were there zombies? Did he look like a gardener? Could he eat or not? Can he go through walls or not? Do you recognize him or not? I mean, there it was just like horrible editing, right? So I just thought my Bible's broke. Called my parents into the room, having a slight panic attack about this because I thought this was the true book. And I'm like, mom, dad, what's the deal? look at my chart. It does not line up. You gave me a broken Bible. And that's, uh, that, that's exactly, that's exactly the Bible <laughs> we've had. And I'm like, y'all need, y'all need to clarify this, right? Like you got to know which day he died. Like, was it when the Passover lamb was, you know, I start going through this and I'm like, no, 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 that's there. Um, and, and after that, my dad gave me like my first historical Jesus book. Um, and Ooh, uh, I, what did your dad give you a trip? Uh, it was, it was John Meyer. I don't remember the book, but it's probably hmm. like, you know, the popular version. Cause he has the big series. Um, and trip, you, you said grade five for those of us elsewhere around the world. How old is that? Is that like, 
12? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And yeah, so the, so I would say like from then though, because my parents were like, no, that's what's there, right? I'm not going to tell you it all lines up harmoniously. And that's, we all knew that's there. Then it became a thing to be like, well, then what do you do with it? Obviously what's getting itself done isn't a harmonious, perfectly lined up narrative on top. Uh, then what is it? Um, and that kind of sent me off to uh, like wrestle with the scriptures in a different way than mm. a lot of my friends who, if they ask questions, you know, the parenting or ministerial response was one, why are you asking it? Two, don't doubt or watch out. And then like uh, three, like, whoa, if you take this too seriously, this is a slippery slope. And the next thing you're marrying puppies, you know, like <laughs> it's like you get rid of the Bible. Next thing, bestiality. And uh, uh, if my wife was down here, I'm sure she could tell you a fun story that her parents used to explain said slippery slope. But um, yeah, so the Bible has always been a part of uh, of my life, but my relationship to it's changed. And from then on, the critical part and the like wrestling with it part was part of my faith. Uh, and it didn't get I didn't discover it where I then felt like I was leaving my faith behind, felt more of I was being encouraged, right? Mm. So because my parents and things encouraged it, I thought this is obviously what every other Baptist preacher's kid experienced when they asked these questions. Uh, and since then, I've learned that's not the case. Um, See, people <laughs> people came for the theology, but they're staying for the parenting tips, Trip. This, this is good. Um, our standard question next is, was that experience of the scriptures um, something that was liberative or oppressive. You've already pointed it in that direction, but um, at that stage, what would have you have named it as? And I'm interested to hear how that developed. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely would say it's liberative. And part of it is right after that, like I got really into Jesus. And the more you put Jesus in his mm. historical context, in his Jewish context, the more you take the individual theological desires of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, uh, individually, like let them have their own voice, the more the New Testament lights up as a conversation that's just vibrant and alive. And yeah. they aren't seeking finality and closure, or even like explicit clarity, what they're seeking is to encounter the spirit of the risen Christ, uh, be mm -hmm. it in the life and ministry of the church, right? And, and so it should be normal that encounters with the living reality get a multiplicity of testimonies that can all be trustworthy and not be the same. Right. And so that uh, meant, I always wanted to know like why Matthew acts the way he does and relates to the Jewish tradition so different than Luke. And yet there are all these things that are similar or, uh, and so the, the kind of historical inquiry and then getting into biblical studies became a way the different authors in the text became part of uh, you know, the inheritance of the faith. And mm. as opposed to the Bible as something you have to protect. Uh, I think a lot of people treat the Bible like uh, uh, it, they, they, they think they're being biblical by defending the, defending the Bible existing in like a re, with a really poor assumptions. Like uh, mm -hmm. um, my, one, of my, one of my professors in undergrad told this story one time, and I always liked it. And he's obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. Uh, church history professor Glenn Jonas at Campbell University Baptist School. He uh, it, so much that if you just guess Bruce Springsteen for all the extra credit questions, you'll probably pass, even if you don't know. So like he's that kind of Bruce Springsteen fan. 
Um, and there was someone in class, because it's a Baptist school, that decided that he had been home and had done his research and was ready to take down this liberal teacher, you know, and show him he doesn't believe in the Bible. He's just going and going and going. And Glenn was just like, look, here's, here's what it sounds like. And, and I know, because I grew up a fundamentalist, but at some point I realized that I was so excited that Bruce Springsteen was coming to church. I was just sitting out front waiting for him to show up. And then, then what happens? A, like a big caravan, limousines in the E Street banner all there. And you're so excited. And they go in and play the entire church service. And I was still outside as a fundamentalist staring at the limousine because that was the important part. It's not the vessel isn't the important part. It's what was getting itself done in it. And the church canonized these texts. We wrestle with these texts. We read these texts. These texts are the place we come to discover who we are, who God is, and what life in the presence of the living and life-giving God is. But that's not because the text is the thing. It's that the God who's testified to in these texts and whose acts in history are testified to in these texts is the living and life-giving God, the one Jesus called Abba, and we've been baptized into. Right. Like, and mm. I just, that distinction was so important. Uh, and I think once you get that, then the very same activities that more conservative Christians see as threatening, right? Thinking about the Bible critically actually become places uh, of fidelity. Mm -hmm. uh, because then you start to raise the questions that uh, open us up to an encounter with a God who is wholly other and who is definitely for us and definitely on the side of the oppressed. And so like that liberative function mm -hmm. to me, if, if we get, if we recognize what the Bible is, it becomes liberative because it's not something we possess and tame. And it's not a thing, an object we celebrate. It, it is, it is a, it's a, it's like the soundscape or storyscape of God. Like if you want to encounter the divine in a place we trust it, as Christians, then we can't leave these stories behind. But it's not because the stories are the thing. It's because they, they are pointing to, um, you know, the ultimate reality. So, um, and, good trip. and I would say the other, the other big switch uh, was when we started church planning, we went from rural North Carolina into uh, Raleigh, and I was in art magnet school for theater. So, you know, I went from the missionary Baptist was edgy to having like Jewish and gay friends and atheist friends. Right. So all of a sudden you ask different questions and my parents had a similar response. And so I didn't see those growth things as uh, failures as a Christian. Yeah. It's what does it mean for me to catch up to the liberating love of God and uh, how I see the world so that I can be faithful in new ways. Um, my mom used to say uh, that the, the, the challenge of the kingdom of God is we all know how to love those who love us, uh, but to love beyond those who love us is always a challenge. And the kingdom is always calling one step of where we've figured it out, right? Mm -hmm. So God is always on the edge of where you are, your community is, your nation is, right? Because God always desires for that network of God belovedness to increase. Um, and, and that to me was something the scriptures facilitated. And I'm real, and it hurt, I say that because I used to think it was so weird how many people were bitter about their upbringing. And then I realized mine just was not normal for a lot of people because a yeah. lot of times the scriptures, the church and the authority figures that mentor you are the very ones going, the authority this tradition and these texts have are the same ones 
that we're using to justify cutting yourself off from the least of these, from the cross bearers in our own context. Mm -hmm. And like, and, and then you read the New Testament and you're like, how did you get this? You know, um, it's not immediately obvious, but if, if you're in group, if you're tribe, right? Like the, when you, any, whatever culture you're in, you learn to speak. And so those symbols and language and stories all get put on the world, right? Like there is whatever, most of the time, an objective world out there for most people, but it always comes interpreted because there's not a passive benign version of language and stories. And so even if you have these texts, those texts come interpreted, um, that your neighbor comes interpreted. And you can see it just if you look back at different generations, you can see in your own family how the world that was handed on came interpreted differently. Uh, and once you get that, then you can realize and have more patience, I think, for people who, when you say the Bible is a liberating and life-giving text that's helped me encounter God, they look at you and go, WTF, are you serious? You know, because that text came interpreted through lens of oppression and patriarchy and hierarchy and domination. And, um, and since the, you know, we have plenty of Mennonites here, uh, the uh, free church has a lot of criticisms for the way the church accommodated um, the testimony of, the, <laughs> of Israel and Jesus to uh, empires and violence and structures that are ultimately antithetical right, to the way divine power operates in the text. And so the, I think the, the, the biggest moment growing up after we moved and encountered difference was that was the nineties. And um, that is when the HIV AIDS crisis got on the religious agenda, right? Like the church has spent a lot of time ignoring it. Then just being like, Oh, it's a gay disease, you know, and these type of really demeaning things going like, if you have it, you're judged. Right. And that was at this first move um, in the church in North Carolina, where people thought maybe that's not the most Christian thing to do, right? And my my dad and a few of his friends started a partnership. It was called the Baptist AIDS Partnership in North Carolina. And twice a year, they put on week-long spiritual retreats for people with HIV AIDS and their caretakers, wow. and then brought together lots of resources from nonprofits, people from state agencies to help them learn how to get the resources they need, and then would try to find congregations in the area where they live to be supportive. Um, and I remember hearing about this when, uh, when, you know, when they're going on and planning it and stuff. And then when they do it the first time I got invited to do music and stuff, uh, during it and sing. And, uh, and so if you go to, if this is like something, you know, your parents have been working on and you're a part of, and you go and you're like, this is what it means to be Baptist. <laughs> and you're like, whoa. And then all of a sudden you see people that uh, are, are, are in gangs that hate each other embracing or like there's so many beautiful things. And then you hear these stories where the church has hurt and harmed them and you're in, in shock. And, and like in that space where you saw a kind of movement of God that was so beautiful uh, that it should be true. And you heard testimonies of how church had kicked people out and shunned them. Uh, I knew at that point, because I had been gifted this beautiful experience of God early in life, I was going to give myself to the gospel so that less people encounter um, an ugly, painful, violent Jesus that casts people out. And I mean, and I'm not saying like, I'm like good at it, 
IS would like to fail at that vision rather than walk away sure. or to like accommodate to the ugly. Um, and so it, since that was possible and I had experienced it, I wanted to be a part of that. Beautiful. Thank you, Trip. There's so much there. I wish we could. Oof. Mm. And Trip, I, I really appreciate you sharing. I, I've heard you intro your story a number of times and I'm always struck by um, uh, your parents and the way that they loved you and the permission giving um, for um, uh, how you're wired and um, uh, your gifts and the way that you love. But I've never heard you share about um, that part of your parents' ministry and the fact that you were invited into it. Uh, I joked earlier about the parenting tips, but I mean, um, it truly, the not the positions that were taken, but the posture um, of yeah. your parents. And um, it, it is something really beautiful that models something and, and something to, beautiful to be a part of as well. I, I just really appreciate you sharing that part of your story. Oh, thanks. I mean, I like saying nice things about my parents. <laughs> I haven't yeah. met them yet, Trip. That's, How's that's that possible? Happen. Trip, I, I haven't met them yet either. I'm, what, no, I, I did, I'm sure you met, you met my dad at Wild Goose. Come on. Oh, you know what? I actually did. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Now I, I actually, now that I, yeah, yeah, I did. I met, I met your dad. That's and, you know, but you still had dreads then. So I, once you cut the dreads off, like you lose a lot of the memory. Um, I, I think I lose like, a lot of the magic. Oh. Um, uh, Dan knows this, but um, uh, it was you wild goose. Um, well, I used to. Like that, used that's to. the okay. That's the yeah. Um, uh, Dan knows it. Wild Goose was very pivotal in me getting rid of the locks. Um, and the humidity. Uh, uh, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, uh, <laughs> which I need to go into the, the the particular. There was um, I mean that's a that's a whole other thing. But what was fascinating for me is uh, like the week prior, I'd been behind that sacred desk at Trinity United Church of Christ um, mm -hmm. uh, with our mate um, Otis Moss III and I was um, back with them the week after after my haircut and um, so many people were so disappointed <laughs> I'm just so so disappointed that um, uh, so I mean that's a whole nother conversation for for another time but I really appreciated the space that you were bringing in that um, uh, in that particular space dan i think you were going to ask a question before i um uh reply maybe unkindly to the hospitality i was shown in that space oh no worries um <laughs> um yeah so <clears throat> as a process person you're used to tracing the, the connections um i think that's what Catherine keller says and um if you could use some of the hermeneutical tools and gifts that you have to offer to um, exegete whatever passage you feel lured toward. And uh, yeah, so let's, I, I'd love to dive into one of the scriptures. And maybe well, permission trip in doing that to um, A, introduce people to um, uh, tenor, to um, Lua and the importance uh, of um, that uh, linguistic hook for um, this particular stream um, and process for people. Some people are like, so 
I see process party hashtag um, on Dan's stuff, on your stuff, or other Mason's stuff. Like, what is going on? What what is Trip up to? Okay, so um, okay, if we're thinking a process version of introducing particular biblical text, if you think of both the Johannine prologue and and the Colossians one, both of them have these cosmic pictures. Mm. Um, and connected to them is uh, kind of three big affirmations, right? That the, the creator of all is invested in all for the benefit of all, right? They all have this picture where the, the source of life and love, um, be it the word or Christ, right? The cosmic Christ image in Colossians, they is the very source from which things come um, and the destination of its culmination. And so you get, uh, and then they both have ways in which the particularities of the person Jesus expresses the reason and rhythm and generative nature of the process of his cosmic history. Uh, and it's like the word becomes flesh in, in John or in Colossians, this is the image of the invisible God, right? And so both of them, the incarnation reveals to us the character of the one Jesus called Abba, the source Mm. of all becoming, and uh, Jesus reveals the potential for all of creation, be it um, in in this image, in Colossians, like all things come to participate. Um, In in John, it gets, uh, you know, it goes up to the incarnation. And then it says the word came to his own and they knew him not right? Uh, And and there you get this conflict that uh, the very source of all existence, the reason of its becoming, the principle of possibility, uh, all that kind of thing, it it takes sarks, it takes flesh, and then the world doesn't know it, right? So the incarnation is then Jesus becomes the fruit of this whole cosmic story of God's investment in the story so that we can, one, know the source of things, Two, know what faithfulness looks like in a person. And three, know the promise of and potential in our own creaturely becoming. Mm. And all three of those things you can see in those big Christ hymns. Um, you could go to the, the Philippians text as well, right? But that text is one where Paul is picking up a, 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 a song everyone already knew in Philippians, right? The, um, he, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, right? humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, even a death on the cross, that bit. But he adds, most New Testament scholars think a preface, right? He goes, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, y'all know the song, sing it, did not count (laughs) equality with God, you know, and and there, but but I think that's really important because you can see, like, what is the fruit of the incarnation, the word made sarks? It's not so that you know you get to the destination and now we're saved and pulled out of it. It's so that the spirit-filled existence so where and that connected to this human, fully human and fully like, but the fully human Jesus, his faithfulness was so faithful, it fuses with the eternal logos so that this body that was fully faithful is the image of the invisible God in his life. And you don't get to opt out, church, right? You've been baptized into this body. And so mm. he goes, let that same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, right? And so 
there you can see that this big cosmic picture that so often we want to set aside and go, this is salvation history and how we get saved. Paul goes like, no, no, that's actually what you're called to do. This mm-hmm. is the very thing you're called to participate in. Uh, and that is what, a, 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 as, as a, you know, a theologian, then I want to ask myself, how do you understand the incarnation in the historical person Jesus such that it is both the fruit of cosmic history, the promise of a good God's commitment to creation, and how is it expressed in a particular life that opens up a way of life for those who are Christians? That is how an open and relational theologian like starts to look at these texts, and then they go back and, and go like, what kind of philosophical categories or that kind mm. of thing? But to me, it was the participatory language of faith um, in Paul and uh, the gift of the spirit, right, in Luke X, or the come and follow me kind of discipleship, or I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? Like if you look at how all four gospels, Jesus is teaching the disciples to what? Participate. And he walks even to people that think they don't have a place in the kingdom of God, right? And what's he do? He's like, Y'all got one. Come on. <laughs> um, if you if you think um, this is one of the historical things that first stuck out to me. So Josephus or, you know, a Jewish historian um, uh, actually talks more about John the Baptist than mm-hmm. he does Jesus and yeah. the in Jewish history. And when he talks about John, he says that the, the people come out and, you know, John's like spitting fire, fire and brimstone, kind of apocalyptic preaching. And it says, that he didn't baptize them until their skin sags. Like they had fasted so much and they knew they were really scummy. And they, after you show real repentance by fasting so much, your skin sags, then you get baptized. Right. And Jesus has an experience with John um, Mm. and is testified to in scripture. And it's so embarrassing. The historians are like, yeah, that definitely happened because not (laughs) most people that are, if it takes you like 10 years after his resurrection and you're like the image of the invisible God, you don't normally start his bio with, well, I got baptized by this crazy guy that was sitting by the river eating bugs, you know? (laughs) So we think it's a pretty historical experience. And, um, but what does Jesus do after it? He goes, he gets tempted, right? Uh, in, in the synoptics, the temptations are different ways to be the Christ. That's right. So uh, do you want to jump off and float down like Silver Surfer off the top of the, you know, just compel belief. Come on, just eat. I'm quoting the Bible at you. God's not going to let you scrape your knee, little baby JC, you know, or or like, you know, I bet you think you could do a better job than Caesar. In fact, I'm confident you would. You actually have poor friends. You thought about that, Jesus? So if you would just bow to me, like I, I got, I have access and then you could do this, right? Mm. And, and, or like, what What if you fixed everyone's material problems? There's a lot of rocks if you make it bread. You know, like all of these are ways of being the Christ and all three of them in different ways say that this way of embodying the Christ is one that demands assent when it arrives. Mm. Jesus refuses. And then what does he do? He doesn't take up John's ministry when he's killed. He goes from city to city. What does he do? He shows up and announces that the presence of God's kingdom is already there and everything that needed to happen for them to participate, it has happened and you're invited. 
And what it keeps you from being welcomed is your own inability to leave the world that is death dealing behind and embrace it, right? The contrast between uh, what happens in John and what Jesus does is really essential. Um, He doesn't stand outside judging. He goes in proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. It it is not an internally uh, focused kind of ministry um, and vision. It's an externally focused one. Um, And so that kind of picture of Jesus's own understanding sets off his ministry. And then throughout it, he calls the disciples to then just join it, right? Mm. So um, like if you take just Luke X, uh, you get the spirit of the Lord is upon Mary, right? And she participates in the coming of the Christ. The spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus. And he picks up the text and then edits Isaiah so that the violence is cut out and the f- forgiveness is extended beyond the tribe. And then when everyone's like, that's not a bad sermon, Jesus goes, yeah, uh, just to clarify so everyone gets this. You remember when Elijah made sure to help the person that wasn't even an Israelite? I was thinking that's what I'm talking about. And then they're like, we got to kill this fool. What a horrible youth sermon. You know, why would you let this kid get up there and preach? You know, and so they try to run him off a cliff. Um, But the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then he says, today, this is happening. Right. And then from that point on, when he starts his ministry, the encounter with the disciples is today, it is happening. You're called to participate in it. And then he sends out the 12 by twos. What are they doing? The very same things that Jesus said. And when he quotes Isaiah, he was going to do. And then he doesn't get the response. And he goes, no, no, you really do have the power and the authority to do these things. And he sends out 70. And then they come back. And he realizes that the powers are going to have a showdown in in Jerusalem. And the disciples are like, don't go there. You'll get killed. And Jesus goes, you don't understand me. And you have the showdown in Jerusalem, the death, the resurrection. And then he goes, wait. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And it says, Jesus, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus teaches them for 40 days Mm -hmm. about the kingdom of God. Just like, just to clarify, now that I've raised from the dead, uh, what I was talking about and now wait for the spirit. And then what do they do? They go and embody this. And, And they even keep up some of those same principles, right? Like if you look at the story of Luke X, you get the whole thing with Peter going, look, I know the Bible. You can't eat with them. And then Jesus is like, I've made it clean, take and eat. And Pete's like, I really feel like there's a demon tempting me with this dream. You know, it has to have three times. And what's he learned, right? Like the the fulfillment of the scriptures actually means leaving behind our situatedness when it blinds us to the radical advance of the inclusive and liberating love of God. And that's what you're called to participate in. And you can see like that image of participation, the image of you inherit a gift of faith and life. And then part, what does faithfulness look like? It's discerning the inheritance. So you pass on a blessing greater than you were given. And then when you are part of the body of Christ, then that's what you're called to do. That's what you're invited to do. And I mean, I could keep running down through how that plays out, but I think that- I mean, can can I make some observations? I I think the stereotype for some people when they think process is um, uh, they think that- um, uh, here we're going to get some um, an apparatus of a philosophy um, that's an alternative to other metaphysics um, or the absence of metaphysics. Um, uh, here's like some uh, postmodern, we don't need 
like that leg of the chair anymore. We, we can set it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but w- what you did is um, you, you started with the narrative of Jesus um, and uh, uh, allowed that to frame any talk of um, a, a messianic reality and it being a, a cosmic messianic reality and mm-hmm. then went through um, the story itself. Um, even in the like little meme we sent out for um, this event happening uh, I situated you and uh, David Bentley Hart side by side as like here's maybe uh, one of the um, English speaking world's um, most popular like mouthpieces for classical theism Um, I I just find it really interesting that you didn't go like Whitehead you didn't go Cobb Um, uh, you you didn't set up um, an alternative metaphysics or um, like throw in the rubbish metaphysics generally you told the story of jesus and invited people in in ways where um uh, participation isn't merely metaphor right like it 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 might actually call us into something more where do you think most people um uh not play with process um and where do these stereotypes of what process is like i'm sure you've seen david bentley hart where he um he, he, he trashes. Yeah. Well, I, okay, two things. One, when David Bentley Hart gives a hard time to Thomas Aquinas and Calvin, I agree with him, right? So <laughs> I, uh, Calvin's God isn't worthy of worship and Aquinas, the di- way he differentiates the supernatural from the natural uh, is the precursor toward, to kind of evacuative picture of the divine and the yeah. rise of uh, material, like materialistic secularism, right? So like yeah. both of those, like are great um well, david it's, it's bentley hart and i are both panpsychists like, oh, yeah well okay go there oh yeah, yeah no i was there. just saying and but you, because like he has a, a really thick ontology and process has a similar one part of it the big contrasts are what you think is entailed in perfection um hmm. because both of us want to have a metaphysics where god is perfect and one where the participatory expression of god in the incarnation and the sacramental invitation of the life of the mm. church are ontologically real, right? I think that's true for both of yeah. us in deep ways. Um, also, uh, in his book on God, like, you know, the, the one that's more philosophy of religion, yeah, uh, yeah, the experience the, of God. Uh, yeah, like, bliss consciousness. Yeah, I don't, there's hardly anything, and I don't, I don't like about that. And in fact, he, like, uses the Trinity as a way of thinking about multiplicity of religious traditions. So um, process does it in a similar way uh, and even uses the same elements of historic Christianity to think about um, a multiplicity within the divine life. Um, so there are like lots of similarities, but the, but like the contrasts are really important, but, you know, I always think if someone's in a David Bentley heart, like there's no use witnessing to them on behalf of process. We have so many Christians whose God's not even as nice as Jesus. Yeah. That's, that's right. depressing. Yeah, like it's just sad. I think that's my one, like, just so I'm not like a you know a pure relativist. I just have my one absolute is God should at least be as nice as Jesus, if you're a Christian. <laughs> and sadly, that's not true. And I even know some Christians who they're nicer than their deity. Like it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. You're, you're like, how does this work? You know, um, but I'm not sure it does anyway. But the uh, uh, but I would say the the intuitions 
for process when it goes to thinking metaphysics is twofold. What one, everyone has one, whether you acknowledge it or not, it just depends on if you want to. Yeah, um, sure. So there's, there's that part. The other side is the, uh, and I think y'all like, because you're concerned about nonviolent atonement theories, right. That you've been doing this series on it. Uh, it, it multiple episodes have pointed out <laughs> that some of the reasons we have violent atonement theories is because our understanding of divine perfection necessitated it. Yeah. And then you critique it by pointing out that, well, there are these Bible verses that describe God. And I guess God's either not perfect or that's not accurate, you know, and these things show up all the time. <laughs> Process philosophy, just like Platonism, right? If you're David Bentley Hart, mm-hmm. uh, is a philosophy and every philosophy uh, is a, a larger conversation, um, be it disciplines you engage, traditions you engage, then you in a confessional tradition using a philosophy to reflect on the life of faith. And so there are people that use Plato and Whitehead from every religious tradition and ones that are more or less, uh, you know, uh, faithful to the historic in scare quotes version or not. Um, To, for me, I found process in uh, college I was in a philosophy of religion class with a radical orthodoxy professor mm. um, and we were reading Aquinas and he was explaining the divine attributes. And he's like, you know, this is what it means to be a perfect God. God doesn't change. God doesn't suffer. God's omnipotent, you know, going through the big omnis. Mm. And I raised my hand. Um, one, my favorite professor had left and he replaced him. So I was probably already, like you know bitter (laughs) and i said um are you talking about christianity not the nicest i see i was i've made some moral progress i wouldn't be that mean anymore um he goes well what do you mean i was like well god repents in the bible god changes god's mind and debates whether or not there should have been a king not even sure there was good Mm. clarity on it um the prophets regularly go i really hope you do this Thus says mm-hmm. the Lord, but if you don't, this happened, but maybe you'll change. And this happened like the whole thing seems like God obviously changes God feel. And then have you thought about the cross? Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and he goes trip, this sounds like process philosophy and it's not compatible with Christianity. Wow. And you know, that eight wing gets really rowdy, goes to the library, Google's up process omnipotence. And then mm-hmm. over the weekend, I read Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes uh, by Charles Hartshorn and mm. basically spent the rest of the semester saying things I read in the library over the weekend from a process perspective to argue with them. <laughs> um, and and then the for me, it was like this philosophy was uh, emphasizing the kind of open, loving, relational vision of the God of Israel and the one Jesus called Abba. Uh, it described the ex- the most beautiful experiences of participating in the kingdom of God. And um, so the, the philosophy in some ways resonated deeply with my own encounter and the communities of faith I came out of, uh, most of which would never have read Thomas Aquinas. We were Baptists. <laughs> like I, I, and, and when, it, you know, I'm in Edinburgh now at the University of Edinburgh. So yeah. regularly I'll like be introducing this and I'll, and someone to say, but what about insert some line about the creed or whatever? I'm like, I'm Baptist. We do the Bible. 
and 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 I and I'd say it jokingly, but there's some really really creative theologians that feel like the tradition uh, is more authoritative than just Israel's testimony about God, mm. and so they're like like Aquinas. Um, I did this exegesis paper in undergrad for uh, the Society of Biblical Literature undergrad competition. And I, uh, that was my first academic award. Mm. There you go. Yeah, well, it was on Jeremiah 18. This is the potter mm. passage, mm-hmm. you know, and Jer- it, God's like, go down to the potter's house. Jeremiah's like, I say yes to God. I go down the potter's house. Potter clay falls over, then picks it back up, reworks it. And Jeremiah's like, look, Y'all need to wise up, son. This is this is not an explicit translation. This is more of a transliteration. Um, but the, this is the TFV, right? The the Trip Fuller version. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is Trip's and, message. Yeah, <laughs> the TM. Uh, the but it's like, look, if you if you don't wise up and listen to me, junk's gonna hit the fan, and and it's gonna be bad. But listen, look at the potter. You see it fell over and I'm not telling you, you have to be the potter. I'm just saying, would you cooperate with me so that even when the clay falls over, we can rework it into something beautiful because I'm invested in this ugly situation, changing directions and coming out with a piece of art we celebrate. Hmm. But if you don't listen, not going to be good, right? Well, if you read that and then asked yourself, let's assume Israel's God's a good like an image you would trust for who God is. God mm-hmm. changes, God's responsive, God's relational, isn't invested in the flourishing of the other, and their flourishing can't be accomplished by coercion because coercion and the removal of freedom is a removal of the possibility of genuine reciprocal love. Mm. And lots of lots of uh, people thought that in the earliest part of the church. Jewish exegesis points it out. Yeah. Then uh, once you get uh, the kind of, more Hellenistic picture of divine perfection, that passage is uncomfortable because God's not perfect. And I did this comparative historic, uh, historical uh, exegesis where I look at how Aquinas, Luther, Calvin all come up with ways when they preach the text to make it say uh, that God doesn't change and isn't open and relational. And the, two and, of and the go, summary of which is like, not really saying that. Yeah, basically, they, yeah. my favorite <laughs> example, Calvin goes, now I know it sounds like, insert open and relational theology, <laughs> but this is more like a parent who's hanging out with their kids. And while the parents complete sovereign control, they sometimes get on the floor and play with them. And then when they don't know how to talk yet, you're like, baby, baby. And this the prophet of the lord that says thus saith the lord that's baby talk because really god's omnipotent and sovereign and in complete control so no worries and i'm like "Mm, mm." so the process philosophy it develops in the early 20th century uh from uh in light of the bigger cosmic picture like 200 years ago we didn't even know about the milky way galaxy Sure. Let alone, yeah. we're a part of a mediocre galaxy in a giant cosmos. Um, we didn't have a good grasp of the nature of biological evolution. We didn't understand 
um, the history of different religious traditions or historical. There's so many things that have changed. And when you get to the early 20th century, those pictures, the scientific picture erupts and leaves behind a kind of death deadening early modern picture of a flattened materialist world and um, different process philosophies, Teilhard, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Bergson, Whitehead, I mean, all the early ones all kind of have this desire to rethink through uh, the world in light of contemporary science and the, and the growing understanding of the cosmos. Whitehead um, was, had left the belief of God behind. He, had to, yeah. he was a minister's kid. Uh, and then when his son dies in World War I, when Eric dies in World War I, he basically can't sleep for a couple months reads through his pastor dad's library, finds omnipotence explanations for the problem of evil BS, and he's not and talk about God for years. Um, and then you have the eruption relativity, thinking about mm. new science, and he starts to look at how the world, the picture of the world, best picture of the world scientifically changes. And it raises a question um, that for Whitehead was, um, how do you explain how the the in each moment that the cosmos tends towards a generative organization of possibility. Mm -hmm. What do you, of all what's possible in a moment, why are we in a world that has, you know, this is a, he wouldn't have said it this way because this is the trip message version. Like there's a quantum <laughs> fluctuation in a vacuum and the emergence of, of the constants that are generative mm -hmm. and think anthropic principle and all that kind of stuff. Uh, cosmological constants things and then uh you get uh when they they emerge they become generative habits of existence and what happens uh uh gravity brings energy together and then you get stars planets and stuff stars die they explode mm. and in the infernus of each exploding generation of stars new elements are born so after about three generations of dead stars and expanding you now have energy not with enough space that, that you get new arrangements and it's not primarily carbon and hydrogen bonding. Um, and then what happens? You get a periodic table, three generations of dead stars. And then you have the emergence of life on top of that, right? And then you in certain situations in the cosmos, that life starts relating to its environment in ways for flourishing and for ill and can distinguish it to single cell organisms. And then it realizes that if you cooperate with other living things, you can thrive as opposed to, you know, uh, to lead to harm and ill. And then you have the emergence of more complex life. And then you have the emergence of ecosystems and this giant network of relations that anyway. So, but if you look at how the whole thing starts, you got like, you know, quantum type, reality, solid state physics, chemistry, biology, flourishing and development of life to then culture, social, like social biology, all that kind of stuff. And in the middle of, of that big story, you get to explain why is the possibility every moment moving towards generative expanding relationships of them, mm. where communities respond with greater, greater flourishing. And Whitehead goes, well, I guess that people normally use the word God for this. And that's how he came back to thinking about God mm -hmm. and his earliest uh, book where he brings religion back up, Science in the Modern World. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.